It's something for nothing, the Rush fan cast. Jerry, along with Steve. I, I decided to use your name first this time. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. You, you need top billing once in a while. <laughs> it's, what, about six days now since we found out about uh, the death of Neil Peart. I'm yes. Tr- trying to sound chipper like we always do, but it's it's difficult to do. It still is, yes. Definitely. So uh, any thoughts now six days in, Jerry, after Neil's passing? Anything new you want to share with us that's uh, running through your head? No, I mean, the dust has settled a little bit. Yeah. But not much. It's strange. I'm still I'm still in shock. Yeah. Yeah, me too. What we decided to do, we had mentioned at the end of the last podcast that the next three podcasts are kind of in the can already. We already recorded three episodes that we're going to bring to you. But we decided that maybe we should record a little intro to each one, considering the circumstances and talk a little bit more about Neil beforehand. Yeah. So that's what we're doing. And, uh, Jerry, you had put up a petition on change.org. I did. To honor Neil at the Grammys. And I yes. thought that was a great thing. One of our Twitter listeners suggested it to us yes. last time. So we decided to do it. People are signing up. People are signing up. And hopefully we can make some change. Yeah. You never know. The Grammys are, you know, the Grammys. What right. What are going to do? Not rush-friendly, really. Not rush-friendly. Again, not another non-rush-friendly organization. They've been nominated seven times for Grammys. Really? Including uh, once for, like, best documentary for um, Beyond the Lighted Stage. And that didn't win? Nope. What won? I don't know. I know the first time they were nominated was, I'm going to get this wrong and somebody's going to be so mad at me, Moving Pictures, Best Instrumental, YYZ. And you know what won? I know, The Police. The Police. What was the name of the Behind song? Behind My Camel or something? Behind My Whatever. Camel? And I listened to that song. It's terrible. Yeah, it's just a slow... I mean, I like the police, I love but the police. come on. The people who voted didn't even listen to the songs. No. They just picked the police because they're the police. They're and the sting police. is Sting. Yep. I mean, I like Sting, but come on. I know. Give me I a know. break. So they were nominated other times as well. Behind My Camel. Now, I don't even know that's the name of it. Or something Inside has... My Camel. Something about a camel. <laughs> Inside My Camel. <laughs> Was he like in a tauntaun or something? Something about a camel. Anyway, YYZ's better. Yeah. I think most of them, and I'm going to get this uh, fact wrong too, were instrumentals that were nominated for instrumentals. Well, that makes sense, I guess. But since since you put up your change.org petition, Jar, I noticed that people are putting up petitions all over the place about Neil. Yeah. There was one about the Sirius XM channel that yep. they changed to the Rush channel for this week, I believe. Yeah, I signed that. And... um. Someone put up a petition to keep it permanently, yep. which I think is a great idea. Yeah. Somebody put up a petition to have a plaque or some kind of uh, statue or something for Neil in Lakeside Park. Yes. So I signed that one. And I think that's a great idea too. That's I signed that idea. one as well. Yeah. But the Sirius XM thing, I mean, if they have a that's Jimmy- a no-brainer. If they have a Jimmy Buffett channel, Jar, Do they really have they a, do. a Jimmy Buffett? You know what? Just nix the Jimmy Buffett channel. And go with Rush. All those, what are they, Simple. spinheads? What do they call themselves? I don't know. Parrotheads is what <laughs> Parrot they- Parrotheads. Parrothead, you know, just play Jimmy Buffett's greatest hits, which is all they play anyway. Put right. the CD on and uh, let's do a Rush channel. Right. They, I, maybe they have like Margaritaville days where they just play like every live version of Margaritaville. But that's what the channel's called, Margaritaville. Of course it is. 
<laughs> so what we thought we'd do is um, we the emails just keep pouring in with people's thoughts about Neil, and uh, we thought we'd read a couple before we get into our regular episode. Yeah. So why don't we do that? Yeah. The first one I got was from our friend Arjun. Oh, Arjun. In the Netherlands. Oh, I love Arjun. I know. He's, he's great. He, he is great. all the time. And, you know, I told him, he emailed me um, a few days later, like maybe Sunday or Monday. And I said, you know, the first thing I thought about when I heard the news was I thought of Arjun. I did. Because he never got to see Neil. He never got to see them oh, live. And I was tragic, like, oh man, really? it is tragic. So I asked him, you know, whatever, follow up. And he said, um, he said, the news of Neil's death broke in the middle of the night for me. And so it was a little later than most of the fans in America. I woke up to a lot of notifications on my phone and both my Instagram and Facebook feeds were totally bombarded with posts about Neil. At first there was disbelief, and then there was anger, and then there was intense sadness. Having lost my mother to cancer just a year ago, every emotion came right back. Oh, man. It's a cruel disease, which had already destroyed so much in Neil's life, only for him to succumb to it. It's absolutely tragic. Well, that's awful. Then he goes on to say, I've been a drummer for quite some time now, and for a while I felt really stuck. I felt like my drumming wasn't advancing. I didn't know where to go next. Enter Rush and Neil. When I discovered Rush, one of the first things I noticed was the drums. So eloquent, so well-written, and so intense. I immediately Googled who the hell this guy was. <laughs> and I've been a fan <laughs> of Neil in particular ever since that first listen. He brought back a sense of progress in my playing. I suddenly had goals again to play just like him or try my best anyway. And now I found that even when I'm not playing Rush songs, there's a certain influence of him there. I could be playing an Iron Maiden song but use techniques that I took from Neil. Of course, I'm no match for Neil, and I'll never claim to be, but his work will forever have its influence on my drumming, and I'm so grateful for all that he has taught me so far and will continue to teach me in the future. Wow. Thanks, Arjun. Yeah, that's a great email. That's great. And uh, he's such a young Rush fan. I think he it's is. cool that when Neil passed away, all of his friends immediately knew right. to text him. You know, he's such a young Rush fan, and, and still all his friends know he's a diehard Rush fan, which, yeah. is, which is cool. Which is like... What happens when you become a diehard Rush fan? Everybody you know knows. Right. <laughs> right. Because you can't stop talking about Rush. Yeah. Well, hopefully they're all Rush fans. Yeah. Everyone should be a Rush fan. Yeah. That's why we need the serious Rush channel. Yeah, we do. Turn all these Jimmy Buffett fans into Rush fans. <laughs> They'd be much happier. What other strange channels do they have on Sirius? Uh, they have a, well, I don't know if it's strange. They have a Pearl Jam channel. They have a Bruce Springsteen channel. Pearl Jam has a lot of live discs, though, so maybe. Yeah, they play all that live stuff. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Springsteen, yeah, he's got tons of live stuff. Right. Too, bootlegs and stuff. But to me, Rush should have one over Jimmy. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. You got one more email for us? I do. It's from a listener named David. He says, as a 14-year-old living in Yorkshire, in England, I first heard Rush when all the world's a stage was released. I immediately fell for the energy, amazing musicianship, and then as soon as the drum solo came on, I was hooked and had a new hero. When Hemispheres were, was released, I saw the lads at the Hammersmith Odeon. That must be a great place, the Hammersmith oh, wow. Odeon. Uh, I saw them at the Hammersmith Odeon in the big smoke that is London. Over the years, I saw Rush live numerous times locally and around the UK, meeting Getty and Alex for a gig in Leeds being a highlight. But like many Rush fans, I will admit my interest waned after Hold Your Fire. I don't know about that. It does happen. I mean, a lot, of Ru- a lot of Rush fans, but yeah, we've talked about this before. But there's a boomerang here. My interest was rekindled when the R30 UK tour was announced and my brother got hold of front row tickets for Manchester. Oh, nice. Watching Neil work up close i was totally blown away by how much the drum kit moved when he played and the effort he put 
in must have been immense. We saw every tour from then to the end and managed to get some great views. In Ghost Rider, Neil was brilliant at conveying his feelings. It was great that he could find happiness with Carrie and have a beautiful daughter, and my thoughts are with him. I am not as eloquent with words as my hero, but just wanted to give the thoughts of a guy from Northern England. Cheers, David. Nobody is as elegant with his words as Neil. Yeah. I heard an interview with him the other day on, on the Sirius channel. And what a smart guy. Unbelievable. He's a smart guy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And he, and he spoke, you know, he spoke with authority because he, you know, he's kind of thinking about things all the time. Very like, thoughtful person. Yeah. Anytime, I, I think any- In all ways. Yeah. And any questions somebody has asked him, he's probably just thought of it just in his day-to-day life. Oh, yeah. I got one more thing before we get to the rest of our regular episode. Sure. Um, I found this on Twitter, a follower of ours. I'm not sure if he's a listener. Artie Fufkin, still having a bit of trouble with Neil's passing. I talked to my brother, another Rush fan, and he put it into perspective. Neil was our John Lennon. Mm. Lyrics and ideas that moved the world. It made me feel a bit better. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a great analogy. Yeah. Because he, he, really, he really was our John Lennon. And, yeah. and just the outpouring of love and feelings for Neil. I mean, it's similar. I mean, I, I was only 10 when John Lennon died. Yeah. But it's similar. It really is. Yeah, I remember when he died. Yeah. It's, it's a very similar thing. So what we're going to do is we're going to play the episode that we were supposed to bring you last week. It's our interview with Nathan Santos. So we're mourning the professor, and we're going to bring you an interview with a professor. Yeah. We sound a lot happier... <laughs> on this episode so when we shift to our regularly scheduled program you'll see we're a lot brighter yeah so let's bring you that now it's something for nothing the rush fan cast it's <laughs> steve and jerry we're laughing because this is the third time we've done the intro because yeah. my voice keeps cracking i'm a little bit under the weather i'm recovering and uh, you can follow us on twitter at rush fancast instagram the rush cast Email Jerry, the rushcast at gmail.com. Jerry loves to get your emails. I've gotten a lot of them recently. So. Yeah. And we thank you for that. The podcast is available everywhere. Rate us on your favorite podcast app. We really appreciate it. Yep. And we appreciate you listening. We do. And we appreciate Lex, who provides our bass intros for us. Another great one today. Yep. And uh, he's the best bassist other than Getty. Right. He's number two. Number so two. Getty. And then there's Lex. He's number two. He's definitely the, the you best. You know what? I'm going to go one and one A. Wow. How about that? Lex is going to send you a text <laughs> and say that is not true. <laughs> it's true. Getty's one. Lex is one A. I would have put Chris Squire above Lex, but he's no longer with us. Yeah. So Lex is one A. Wow. How about that? That's great. That's high praise. It is. Uh, so today we're doing something really exciting on the Rush Fan Cast. About a month or so ago, we did an interview. We've got another one for you today. That's right. We have a special guest. Yes, director of commercial music and instructor of music at Tiffin University in Tiffin, Ohio, Nathan Santos. Nathan, welcome to the Rush Fancast. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. We really appreciate it. And uh, you taught a course on Rush a couple years ago in spring of 2014 and fall of 2016 called Progressive Rock and Modern Society. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. It was a... challenge to put it together, but it was also the probably one of the most fun things that I've done in my teaching career. I was able to do it two times, 
and love to do it again. So if anybody's got any suggestions, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you start out by telling us what your Rush discovery story was? Uh, how did you discover Rush, and how long have you been a Rush fan? Well, I've been checking out some of your podcasts. I haven't been able to listen to them all, but it sounds like we're about the same age. So I, I imagine that our experience in coming across them are similar. Uh, but I came from a musical family. My father was from the Philippines, and he was a, a composer and an educator who, at the time we were living in Pennsylvania, I have an older brother who is also an outstanding composer, musician, and a younger brother also who's an outstanding composer, musician. So we all grew up. But um, m my experience is largely being exposed to this stuff by my older brother, who was already starting to get into it. We all, you know, got into pop music, listening to Kiss and all kinds of stuff in the 1970s. And, of course, Tom Sawyer was big on the radio in the early 1980s, but it was my older brother that helped expose me to a lot of this stuff. And then as we became, you know, more experienced as musicians, uh, as well as, as being in music in general in college, etc., you learn to appreciate it more in depth. And, you know, of course, you know, Rush is outstanding in terms of bringing all this high intellectual stuff together with very deep musical ideas that go beyond the commercial. So this is stuff that's going to attract musicians who are more going into the you know deeper aspects of music, not just going into it as you know a commercial career. So their you know influence was very much resonating with me you know, in a deeper musical place. And um, as I got older and was able to experience, you know, their stuff, I, I learned more and more about how far their influence can go. So this course actually was, as I said, it was a wonderful chance to get to know the stuff that I had already known on a superficial level and a much deeper level and, and dive more into lyrics and meanings and, and philosophy and all that stuff and, and see how that, you know, could resonate on a much deeper level. So it sounds like this class was in the works for a long time, at least in your head. It was. Actually, uh, I had the chance to teach some pop music courses at a, a school in Pennsylvania, St. Francis University. And I, at that point, I had a, uh, an idea of teaching a Rush course then, but never put it together. Uh, it wasn't quite the right environment. And then uh, when I moved it to Tiffin, Ohio, to take on this position, the opportunity came up to do a cultural studies course. And I put out the idea, why not look at music from the 19, late 1960s through modern day and chronicle it and you know, talk about music as a reflection of culture and development of culture through that time, help students at our point in time understand you know, again, a deeper level of knowledge about music. And, you know, Rush is a great vehicle for that because they've been together for so long and creating together so long, and it's just a, a fabulous way of teaching about music and, and, you know, the different trends that have occurred over time. So that was my thinking, and I was given the green light and put it together uh, and was able to do it a second time and, you know, kind of, tweak it a little bit. I know I'd, I'd gotten a question from you in the email about meeting Getty Lee recently on his book tour in Pittsburgh and asking, 
you know, what I asked him or, or whatever. I, I know Getty was giving sort of one-liners to everybody that's going by. So I had asked him if he had known about this, and I, I think he said no, but he oh. said, I'm surprised you didn't get fired. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask next. How, how did that go over with the university when you hatched this idea with them? Uh, no, they were totally open to it. Tiffany University, right now, the music department, we're trying as hard as we can to promote more uh, contemporary and uh, uh, commercial type of, of ventures. Um, we're integrating hip-hop. We're trying to push more studio technology and utilizing repertory that is more recent. So it actually fit into the philosophy perfectly. And, um, you know, it, it got a lot of play over the Internet. I was getting, you know, hammered with emails asking how they could enroll into the course, and unfortunately had to be there in order to do it, because it wasn't on an online course, but it was certainly uh, well-received by the students, I believe, I hope. <laughs> um, but the university was very open to it, and, you know, I've, I've taught other things like history blues, and, you know, even my listening and analysis course was based more on uh, analyzing Pink Floyd's The Wall and things like that. So mm -hmm. I've been able to, you know, in incorporate more contemporary things uh, into my teaching there at Tiffany University. Maybe off-air you can explain The Wall to us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> love to do that, too. <laughs> Why don't you define progressive rock for us, Nathan? The course is called Progressive Rock in Modern Society. What, what, is, what is progressive rock to you, and where does Rush fit into the history of progressive rock? Well, it's uh, interesting. I, I, I was reteaching this Pink Floyd course this semester, so uh, just to prepare my mind for it, I read a recent book that came out called Strange Rebels, or I'm sorry, The Show That Never Ends by David Weigel. And it was all about progressive rock and, and the whole you know, um, evolution of it. To me, progressive rock is taking rock instrumentation and different rhythms and sort of the attitude of rock, the kind of the primitivism, and put it into something that is not danceable necessarily, but it's more intellectual and it's more uh, intellectual. It's uh, more cognitive and more analytical. Lyrics, you know, are ones that are exploring things that are not about love and war necessarily on the surface. So they were trying to find reasons to do things that, were almost anti-commercial. And, you know, this was a style that emerged out of post-war Britain in the 1960s and 70s uh, at the same time that, you know, the counterculture was starting to become much more of a preoccupation. Um, so all this stuff, you know, kind of was set up as a contrast to what was going on in the commercial music industry. And it just happened to catch on with, you know, different audiences, counterculture audiences and whatnot. And, you know, I think it stayed that way most of the time. And there was, there was times of the commercial industry, like with Asia and different groups like that, you know, the Buggles had elevated some of that music to a little bit more commercial, you know, uh, success. But for the most part, it stayed under the radar, which is where I think a lot of the musicians in prog rock really was most comfortable, <laughs> including Rush, too. You sent us the um, course descriptions. Thank you for that. It was a very interesting read. And I was wondering, you know, it seemed like the thrust of the class as a whole was really centered on how Rush both reflected and confronted, like, the status quo. 
in every stage of their career. Like they didn't set the agenda, like maybe Dylan would have, but they definitely reinterpreted the agenda. Would you agree with that? Oh, definitely. Uh, definitely. I, I think um, they were all about confrontation from the start. And I mean, not only confronting people that wanted them to change, but confronting audiences in general and challenging them to think deeper about their lives and have a little bit more, greater awareness of what's going on around them. I mean, they obviously, in embracing technology, this was not something that they, you know, just wanted to to stay in, in some cave somewhere. And they were comfortable experimenting and also commenting about things that were going on. But I think it was always from the standpoint of being people that needed to escape from the common or escape from what was expected of them and wanting to express their own individuality in different ways. So it was definitely confrontational music from the start. And they were going to go down swinging, but managed to find enough of influence to, to, to sustain themselves for 40 some years. It was really amazing. So speaking of going down swing, I was going to bring up 2112 and the situation Rush found themselves in with their record company during that time. How do you feel that ties in with their individual versus the masses ideas? Well, 1976 was a difficult time for people in general. I mean, politics, people were, were questioning the government because uh, they just had a president that resigned you know, out of disgrace and uh, there were there were all kinds of other things politically and 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 uh, environmentally going on. I believe that you know their point of view was all looking at the music industry in general, which was starting to go into a very turbulent time itself. Many people say it was Michael Jackson's thriller that you know pulled the industry out of the doldrums. It was being torn apart by all kinds of fracturing of interests and you know, record companies trying to survive or influence. So I, I think uh, for them to have produced that album was was a really tremendous statement, um, you know, and it was very courageous in bringing out a lot of the, you know, politics that, well, the Randian objectivism that, you know, Peart was at the time exploring and trying to put that into some kind of artistic gesture against the, you know, criticism of people who were thought, you know, thinking that it was very far right wing or, or whatever, um, and saying, well, you know, screw you all, we're gonna we're gonna do this anyway. <laughs> um, it was just a, amazing music, though, to take that story and make it into something that was understandable and relatable. Um, I, I think that. That's been the story of their whole career, is just finding enough, you know, material that would resonate with a large enough audience to keep them surviving financially. I think that was a, a great moment for them to do that. Yeah, definitely. You know, we can't really talk about the counterculture if we're not going to talk about suburbia in general. So Rush's upbringing was in a suburban atmosphere. Do you think that some of their individuality came out of that suburban atmosphere? Oh, yeah, definitely. They talk about their origins in Toronto, again, post-World War II in Young Street and the the counterculture there, and how that energized them. Uh, Of course, that was the same time that many groups like, you know, Led Zeppelin and The Who were influencing youth and giving them direction. 
forming their own identity, their own voice, and giving them an inflection. Definitely that was pointing the way toward getting them out of that suburban life that they felt was stagnating, one that was forcing people into uh, to, to conform to expectations, work expectations, etc. So that was definitely, you know, their, their, where they lived and the uh, legislation that was being passed in terms of, you know, bringing down drinking age and things like that, that were enabling people, uh, musicians, to have a greater escape from Toronto, at least, and maybe give them a larger audience as they started entering the American market and the international market, music, etc. But yeah, I believe that their their whole motivation has all been, a, been about escaping that life. And that's an amazing thing. I know this might be getting ahead of your questions, but, you know, the, the, the clockwork or, uh, sorry, the <laughs> clockwork angel. I say the same thing, clockwork orange all the time. That album was one where they were looking back and saying they were returning back to, you know, a, a certain home life, but with a, a, a changed perspective on things. And so I think that last album was a fitting tribute to everything they had been through. Oh, yeah, definitely. Would you say that progressive rock in general is like a, a counter to the counterculture? Because a lot of music in the 60s was very, was very loose. And so this was like the opposite of that, very tight, very, you know, difficult to play and on purpose. Yeah, definitely. The counterculture um, has, whether you talk about bebop jazz um, or onward from there, if you look at prog rock, things like that, has always been more of a listening music, and they wanted to appeal to an elite audience uh, who were going to appreciate the experience rather than turning off their brains or their you know emotions to just uh, primitive dancing, if you want to put it that way. In one of your lectures, uh, Nathan, you tie in Tolkien with Rush's storytelling in their early work. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? About uh, Talk about storytelling in their music? Yeah. Yeah, I think that was something that Peart brought to, you know, the ensemble that initially Lee and Lifeson were not necessarily thinking in that direction. And I think Peart's uh, obsession with book reading and larger-than-life storytelling, Hemingway novels, all that stuff, uh, was something that he saw as a direction that he wanted to go into. And so, uh, you know, once he joined the band, that second album, Fly By Night, uh, they immediately started going into these long flights of fancy. Initially, there were instrumental jams, but, you know, of course, you know, it wouldn't take too long for them to start exploring, you know, longer oriented the storytelling uh, via concept albums. And even when they got over that, after Hemispheres, you know, they start getting the permanent waves, they maintained thematic integrity throughout each one of these albums. I think each one of these albums has some kind of overarching theme which drives all the music and unites all the music on each one of those albums, even though they may not be considered concept albums. So uh, I, I think the storytelling was there throughout from that second album on. That, so, uh, I, and that's another thing that I wanted to bring to these students is to, to make them understand that some of the beautiful moments on these albums, even though some, you know, most of them are broken into individual tracks and individual songs, they do have some sort of tie to a theme. And, you know, what I always tried to do was relate that theme to whatever was going on at the time in their lives. 
to demonstrate how they weren't just pulling things from the air. They were commenting on things that they were going through at the time and expressing that through their art. So I believe that storytelling for them has been there from the start and never went away. I think that was a, a you know a major priority on their parts is to make sure that everything fit together very nicely. Yeah, as we sit and discuss these albums, we're realizing that there is a theme to every album. Like you said, they're not concept albums, but they're they're based on a concept. Yeah, you guys have done a pretty good job in taking apart a lot of these songs. And, oh, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've been enjoying listening to them. I, I, I want to get through the rest of them. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, I've heard of quite a few of them, and you guys have done a pretty good job in hitting some of the, the big points in each one of these songs. When they were finished recording Hemispheres, I think they were pretty much done with doing these long-form songs. That was a real arduous process, putting that album together. How do you feel Permanent Waves, which was released on the, the first day of the decade of the 80s, how did that signal an artistic change for Rush? Well, that album, they were starting to look at the recording industry and maybe both as a, a tribute to the recording industry that has brought them you know, as far as they did, but also to communicate a change in culture. Uh, because at that time, the recording industry was going from being more of a freeform uh, format where DJs were dictating more of the direction of things, and that's the way they grew up listening to the radio, uh, to something that was becoming, you know, um, surveyed and through social scientific techniques trying to you know, figure out what people are going to want to listen to so that the, the commercial side of it is satisfied. And, you know, both commenting as a nostalgic thing, but also kind of warning us to be careful about the trappings of that life. So I think Permanent Waves was very important to, you know, being the end of the 1970s, too, they were also uh, communicating a, a little bit of, of of uh, fatigue of the 70s and communicating that we were heading into a, a new era as more and more technology was being embraced and um, synthetic type sounds were being experimented with and, you know, new wave was starting to become very uh, um, important in the industry and they were starting to explore that stuff. So I, I think that's what all that stuff was, was communicating was, yes, definitely we're moving into a, a change. Um, we're saying goodbye to this 1970s era. And for them, you know, I think they, as you, as you were just implying, you know, had gone through a period where uh, maybe they were going too deep into a certain direction and um, possibly wanted to do something different from what they were doing. So um, this was communicating also their interest in moving in a different direction. So I think that was a great album. I always love Permanent Waves. Oh yeah, it's an excellent album. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting that at the time when they're making these songs that are like, um, you know, Spirit of Radio that are actively criticizing radio and, you know, the music business, those are the most popular and accessible albums for them. They hit a note, not, no pun intended, but those albums hit a chord with people. Again, no pun intended. Um, and they became popular radio hits. Right. That was the age of big arena groups. And certainly, they had become that, too. And uh, so I, I think they were aware of that and were reflecting that in the new music they were starting to create was more big arena type of sounds, like uh, Jefferson Starship and other groups 
Sticks and and other groups that in Boston, you know, those groups that were starting to sound bigger in terms of their and and, and harder maybe, you know, the distortion sounds from guitars, etc., driving rhythms, and you know, certainly they weren't adverse to bringing all that influence into their own music, and that's what they were exploring. But they, of course, did it in such a way that which kept them just under the radar, I think, for most of the time. But you're right, I think a lot of those uh, remained their their biggest hits from that time. And they went from being under the radar with permanent waves to being way up front with moving pictures. And uh, Neil Peart was quoted as saying, Rush became Rush when moving pictures came out. And it sort of changed everything for them because they were they were famous. How do you think that changed things as far as the writing of the songs and just the band in general? Yeah, that gave them a much larger platform. Obviously, you know, reaching younger people. <laughs> I remember that song. I had bought the 45, and I mean, as well as having the album. But, you know, that album was exploring much bigger textures, much bigger settings. And this is a time when cinematic films were uh, starting to be to explore, say, like Jaws was exploring larger settings, and they wanted to capture that in their music, wanted to become sort of like planners, you know, people that were going around and just observing things. And the synthetic sounds that they were starting to embrace uh, were giving them, you know, a much more relatable sound, I believe. Uh, although, I, you know, each one of these albums, did change according to the custom of the day. And I think that's what kept them relevant, really. I, people criticize those middle albums with the synthesizers, and I'm sure this is maybe one of the questions you're heading toward, but you know, I agree with you guys when you started off with, with um, Power Windows. Um, that was probably, that and Hold Your Fire were maybe my favorite albums among all of them, because uh, that was when I was, you know, in my high school years, going into college years, and certainly a very important and impressionable time for me, and I just listened to those albums over and over and over and over again. So, yeah, moving pictures and pictures is very important. It's that that brought forth Exit Stage Left also, and I can't tell you how many times we listened or watched that <laughs> video tape when it first came out. It just was running constantly, and that was certainly the album that my friends and I used to just play to, you know, stick the record on and just play along with um, and, and just dream about. So that was a very important album for me, personally. But um, I think for many of us in our generation, you know, that was probably amongst the most important albums that of our, our interest. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, the guys in Rush are in a, a different generation than Gen X, yet they have a lot in common with Gen X, especially on, like, Signals. Just definitely the feeling. They, they tapped into something that was in Gen X that either side could could really appreciate. Oh, I agree totally. That's another thing I brought to this course. When I was teaching, again, at St. Francis University in Loretto, this particular explorations course that I was asked to teach, and they gave me basically free reign to do whatever I wanted. And at the time, I thought, well, I think I'll, I'll deal with the 80s. I'll talk about the 1980s and why they were important. And in doing research, I came across... Uh, Neil Strauss and William, I'm sorry, William Strauss and Neil Howe's Generations book, which talked all about generations and, and generational archetypes and, and theory, and I became obsessed by it. So I learned all about, you know, various generations in history, but where that's relevant to this is, you know, Generation X definitely was 
something that Rush commented on from that point on, um, obviously because we were starting to become young adults, and that was sort of the concern from the boomers' standpoint of how we weren't measuring up to what they were doing and how we were, you know, uh, looked at as, as the slackers. And, you know, they were commenting about all the, the apathy that was starting to infiltrate culture as a result of our generation coming up in age. So, yeah, definitely, I, I agree with you totally that that was the start of commenting on, on our generation. They were a little sympathetic to it, though. I got the feeling that from their generation, they were the outcasts wanting to do this crazy rock and roll. And they felt the same way about the Gen X coming up, that they were being criticized and they were being told that they didn't measure up to some kind of, you know, ideal that they couldn't measure up to. Right, exactly. Yeah, all those subsequent albums have more and more songs that are talking about the angst or the alienation or the fracturing or whatever that the youth had to deal with and, you know, the growing instability of people's emotions and things like that. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. That was uh, a fascinating thing to research and try to bring that to the millennials who are in my audience, at the, you know, in this classroom, try to get them to understand from our perspective, you know, how this group, you know, spoke about us and what they were trying to express. So definitely, I, I totally agree with you. Now, would you say the majority of the students that signed up for your class, Nathan, were Rush fans when they signed up, or were they just music fans who wanted to explore this band they, they hadn't heard of? Well, uh, to tell you the truth, I think a lot of them had not heard of them before. <laughs> <laughs> um, this was a cultural studies class, which was open to the entire university, so students are always looking for ways of you know filling out their schedule with more interesting things. <laughs> and, you know, so th that happened to be one. Now, I did have my fair share of geeks in there who maybe had known about them from their parents or, you know, my instrumental majors, uh, especially my bass and guitar students uh, and drum students or whatever, who knew about Rush and just wanted to take it. Um, but a lot of them had never heard of, of the group before. So uh, I had to make sure I pro approached this from the standpoint of teaching them from a much more higher point of view you know, a, a global point of view rather than going specific so much and tried to put all the songs that we analyzed into that perspective where, you know, they're seeing how these particular musicians express what they were going through in their own ways. But I tried as hard as I could not to talk too much tech musical uh, theory and, you know, tried to always make sure that I put what I was talking about into the context of, of their time. So the students could understand, again, that the whole idea of it was, was looking at life from the perspective of these three people, but I also wanted to talk about culture and the evolution of culture through these times so they can get an understanding of what they're living through now and where it came from. <laughs> now, did the students come out of the class with a greater appreciation for Rush? I mean, did you, did you convert any kids into Rush fans? I think so. I know a few people still, you know, I, some of them I work with, and they some of them say that it was one when it, it's not their favorite course that they've taken at Tiffin University, but yeah, there was a few. At least they know who they are now. That's definitely something that I was able to accomplish is you know getting across my passion for the group and getting them at least understand what the group meant in you know in musical history. And what songs were you able to connect to what millennials are going through? 
or their attitudes towards life in general? So this would be the later albums, you know, the Snakes and Arrows, um, even Vapor Trails, but definitely Clockwork Angels was, was the album that was reflecting millennial experience as young people who were just getting ready to go out into the world and trying to make their own stamp on things and hungry for change, hungry for their own chance at things. So obviously that's one reason why that last album was chosen to go in that direction is to reflect that time. I think the millennials, according to Strauss and Howe, began in the year 1982. That was the first cohort you know, year that they were born. So obviously their influence has not been until the late 90s, early 2000s. And by that point, Rush was starting to slow down a bit. <laughs> um, they were spacing out their albums. So, you know, Snakes and Arrows was about religious conflict and using religion as a weapon, that kind of stuff. And I think the stuff they were starting to relate with. But the previous stuff, I was hoping to at least give them an idea. You know, at the time, also, I was teaching this stuff. President Obama was, was in power. So I was trying to explain to them, you know, Gen X is now in power, they're your teachers, they're your parents, etc., so maybe this will help you get to know that generation a little bit better and help you understand what is right above you. <laughs> right. Um, so that was another, you know, part of my mission in putting this course together. Yeah, a lot of these songs, they have a universal aspect to them, especially an album like Clockwork Angels, which is just about uh, the human experience in general and growing up. So I can imagine that the millennials would really you know, understand that. Yeah, I, I think they hopefully got a better idea on, the, you know, also turning the experience into an artistic gesture. That is another thing I wanted to do, too, is not only explore the lyrics, but also help them understand that a lot of the things that Rush were doing musically was also reflecting, you know, different trends of the day whether it be grunge or hip-hop, you know, Rush tried all that stuff, too, but in their own way. I, I think one thing that made Rush's musical exploration so unique was the fact that Peart was presenting them lyrics that weren't things that were used before, so that forced them to be original from a, you know, a prosody point of view where they're using their own inflections and uh, their own lyric phrases and had to come up with musical sounds in order to support that. And we weren't using the same I love you kind of lyrics that everybody had used and would cause, you know, a reflexive kind of a reaction or a compositional thing. They had to come up with original sounds in order to support Pierce's phrasing. And I think that's another really unique thing about the group. So hopefully the, the class, you know, got all of that. Uh, that's certainly how what I was trying to go for. You mentioned the, the grunge era, nineteen ninety one, ninety two. That's about the time when Roll the Bones came out. Do you think uh, that album reflects the sentiments of the times in the same way that Nirvana and Pearl Jam's albums of that time did? Well, I, I think uh, there were certainly harder sounds to come, and you know, I, that album. I know they were exploring the rap and, and some sequencing and that kind of thing. Um, I think their interest is was getting away from the synthetic sounds of the 80s and presenting a much more... Uh, they, they explored acoustic guitars, 
Arsenal and Presto, and I, I, I'm not sure if they got as as hard as they would uh, on Vapor Trails, and even Counterparts has a little bit heavier stuff, but definitely Vapor Trails was was a harder edged album I felt. So maybe that came a little bit later, but I, I think certainly the themes were definitely voiced in the same things that the Seattle musicians were expressing. Yeah, every time it seems to me every time Rush makes an album, they the elements of society and their views on it and the influence of society on them are just put in a martini shaker and it gets shaken up and then then we get these albums we get their thoughts on the times would you agree with that right right great stuff (laughs) another thing i thought was fascinating in your syllabus was the lecture you did on the language of instrumental music now rush had quite a few instrumental songs can you give us a brief synopsis of that and how you think it relates to Rush? Yeah, I, I wanted to explain the idea of virtuosity and how that was also a factor that led to more uh, elitist kind of uh, approach to their music, sort of highbrow versus lowbrow art. You know, the idea that in order to, to reach a certain height, you had to dive deeply into your craft and, you know, instrumental excellence as a symbol for credentials versus charlatanism. You know, uh, virtuosity has always been that. And for them, I think they cared very much about their technique. You can need only look at Neil Peart and his regiment, you know, before going on to the stage. And I'm saying that Lifeson and Lee didn't do this also, but Peart was very obsessed with making sure that every detail of his performance was good for every audience. And maybe that was the biggest reason why he felt like he needed to retire because he physically couldn't match what he was doing in his younger years and didn't want to present something that was mediocre to his, his fans. Um, it's very respectable, but it's also something that uh, puts people into a certain elite group uh, that you've reached a certain high point in your technique. So I wanted to talk about instrumental music from that point of view that they cared very deeply about using, you know, that format to demonstrate their own you know, level of excellence. So the last time you offered this course, Nathan, was four years ago. Uh, do you think you'll offer it again? And if so, how do we get in? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to ask. <laughs> um, I would like to. And I may, just thinking about this over the past week or two, you know, in preparation for this interview, uh, ways that I can uh, reincorporate it into what we're doing at the university. But, you know, I have ambitions on, on doing more stuff with it. I don't know what it would be, whether it be an online course or, or whatever, but I'd have to explore uh, avenues of licensing and things like that in order to make that happen. But I definitely want to continue doing something along these lines. But it's the same kind of urge that you all have in putting together podcasts. You know, my way of showing how much I've appreciated the, the group and their product and what it's meant, but I'm hopefully packaging it in a way which could be something that, you know, younger generations learn from, not only about the group themselves, but how we can utilize art and interpret it as a way of, you know, communicating our own experience. So all that stuff goes into it. But yeah, I would love to, to do more with this. We just have to figure out how. <laughs> Maybe you all can help me with that. Sure. Well, well, if you do it again, please let us know and we'll let our listeners know and maybe you'll have a, a whole online course filled with Rush fans just waiting to get all this information from you, which is awesome. Yeah, I had a great time 
just reviewing for this interview, going through all of it again, and and seeing what I did. And uh, there's definitely a lot of stuff that I brought into this that is not Rush. I mean, I'm talking about the Renaissance, talking about different philosophers and different, you know, authors and different points of view, and all kinds of stuff that you can bring into this stuff. It's, it's just rich uh, with all, all kinds of references and all kinds of different directions you can go. I think that's what makes what you're doing and what everybody else is doing right now really great to go back and explore their stuff and uh, see what else has been there. Yeah, I definitely think um, now's the time when everyone's going back and, and really reflecting on what the band meant to everyone. I agree completely. Nathan Santos, Director of Commercial Music and Instructor of Music at Tiffin University in Tiffin, Ohio. Thanks so much for joining us. We really enjoyed this conversation, Nathan. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it, too. Well, that was an interesting interview, Jared. What did you think? I thought it was great, yeah. Nathan's a very smart guy, yep. and uh, it's a course I would absolutely love to take if he ever offered it again. I wasn't kidding. Yeah, I would have taken it back back in the day. Back in the day, there was no online version of the course. But I'm, talking, you, I'm talking my day. Your day. I would oh, have taken that one. Your, I, yeah, that was definitely no But internet. you wouldn't take it in 2014? No, I would still take it, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I would, absolutely. It'd be very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, the masterclass advertisements I always get on my Facebook. Okay. One Can you audit an online course? I'd have the slides idea. I would, though. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not like, going to Tiffin University to take the course. I mean, it's kind of a long commute. Right, and I don't need a grade, exactly. Right. Pass-fail for me. But I would like to find out after we take the course what grade Nathan would have given us. Oh, yeah, then I guess you have to get a grade. Would he do that if you're auditing, or are they not even allowed to tell you how you did? Uh, I don't know. Friend of the show? We can ask for a favor. <laughs> I don't know. I think so. <laughs> All right. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RushFanCast, Instagram the RushCast, email Jerry. He loves your emails, therushcast at gmail.com. Tell him what you thought of this interview, and you can um, rate us on your favorite podcast app. Yes, we really appreciate do. it, and uh, we appreciate you listening to the Rush Fancast, Something for Nothing. And until next time, Jer, you yes. have a quote for me. A quote? We didn't do an album. So I still want a quote. You give me a quote every week. You need to give me a quote. Okay. How about, uh, to thine own self be true? Oh, that's great. A little Shakespeare for you. Perfect. All right. Take care. Have a good one. Bye. <laughs>